In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to seerahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Inshallah continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asiratul Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography In the previous last few sessions we've been So as I was saying, uh, inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, in the previous few sessions we've been talking about the Prophet ﷺ during his lifetime, one of the uh, major events uh, from the seventh year of the Hijrah, which was the beginning of the seventh year of the Hijrah, which was the campaign, the battle, the incident of Khaybar. And how the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, they went to Khaybar, they marched to Khaybar, and they were able to achieve victory there. And then we've talked about kind of the aftermath of it and some of the subsequent, uh, you know, events and some of the interactions that occurred there. We talked about the Prophet ﷺ's marriage to Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, the mother of the believers, and we talked about a few other things. What we're going to be talking about today, insha'Allah, bi'idnillah, is um, at the end of the Battle of Khaybar, Something very, very heartfelt, something very emotional occurs after the battle of Khaybar has concluded. And that is Ja'far bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who is the cousin of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa He is the older brother of Ali bin Abi Talib. He is the son of Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu who practically raised the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa so Ja'far, he had migrated, he had, take, he had gone uh, to Abyssinia, to Habasha, at the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ. And not only that, but he was appointed by the Prophet ﷺ as the leader of the community there, and as the uh, caretaker of the Muslims while they were there. After the Prophet ﷺ had arrived in the city of Medina, and the news had reached Abyssinia, Habasha, East Africa, the news had reached there that the Prophet ﷺ has migrated to uh, Medina, Al-Madinat Al-Munawwara, which has become a safe haven, a safe place for the Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ is building a community there. Many of the Muslims who had gone to Habasha had already started to come and arrive in Medina. The remainder of the community there, which in some narrations it mentions was maybe 20 to 30 individuals, 
right? There's about 17 men who are mentioned by name and along with them there were some women folk as well. Um, and including there were some sisters who, uh, who had gone there, some women, sahabiyat who had gone there uh, with their husbands and their husbands had passed away there so they were widows. But nevertheless there was a community of maybe 20 to 30 people at the most who was still residing there in Abyssinia. At that time the Prophet ﷺ sent uh, Amr ibn Umayyah al-Damri radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this was a, a very dependable and reliable companion of the Prophet ﷺ, who was very uh, adept at traveling, he was very accustomed to traveling, he was familiar with many different places. The Prophet ﷺ sent him specifically with a message to Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that I would like for you to now return back. I would like for you to come and join your community again. I would like for you to come to the city of Medina. And now uh, we are in a position to be able to uh, take you in. And our work there for now is done. So at this particular time it mentions that <clears throat> Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu and these 20-30 Muslims were not by themselves however. There were um, some Muslims from the region, from the area that we know as Yemen. It was known as Yemen at that time as well. There were Muslims. There were people who had accepted Islam in the region, in the area of Yemen. Very specifically amongst them, there was one tribe known as the Al-Ash'ariyin. Al-Ash'ariyum. Right? Abu Musa Al-Ash'ari. Very famous. Right? So the Al-Ash'ariyun, this was a tribe that was there. And a large number of this tribe had accepted Islam. And they were looking to make their way to the city of Medina as well. So, but the people in Yemen, what we know historically, that they were very embattled. They were people who had struggled greatly financially. There were very harsh economic conditions there in Yemen. So these were not very wealthy. These were poor people. And they were looking for some way, somehow, to be able to make it to the city of Medina. They boarded a ship. And they went on the ship, and the ship ended up taking them to Abyssinia, to Habasha. When they arrived there, they were informed that there are some Muslims here as well, and that was Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and the, remainder, the remaining Muslims there, the remaining Muslim community. So they went and they joined up with them. Ja'far, when these people from Yemen, Abu Musa al-Sha'ri and many of his tribes people, when they arrived there, Ja'far radiallahu ta'ala anhu informed them of his plans to go to the city of Medina, to move there, and to basically take up residence there with the Prophet ﷺ and the community of the Muslims in the blessed city of Medina. They were also very happy, and they expressed the fact that their actual intent was to also go and join the Prophet ﷺ. So now all of them basically grouped together, and they traveled from Habasha, and they came to the city of Medina. And when they arrived in the city of Medina, when they arrived there, they found that the Prophet ﷺ was not in Medina. They were informed that he was a little bit away from the city of Medina at a place named Khaybar. And he had been camped out there for quite some time because of the siege of Khaybar. And then slowly one after another taking down the forts of Khaybar. So they were informed that they are at Khaybar. So this entire contingent of the Muslims, the Meccans, who had lived in Abyssinia now, and if you actually do the math, you realize they had, some of them have lived in Abyssinia for nearly 15 years, right? They went there in the beginning of the fifth year of Hijrah. So that right there is nearly eight years. And then the first six years of Medina here, right? So 14, 15 years. 
And some of them who went a little bit later have still been there for like 13 years. Right? So they've been away for a very long time. And so they arrive there, they are so ecstatic and so excited and somewhat anxious to see the Prophet ﷺ that they decide that, you know what, we're not gonna sit here and wait for everyone to come back. And they just said, we're gonna go ahead and go to Khaybar. They had received news by that time that the Muslims were enjoying victory after victory at Khaybar. It was stable, it was set. And the Prophet ﷺ was still there kind of wrapping everything up. So they decided we're not going to wait, we're going to go and see the Prophet ﷺ there. So the narrations mentioned, there are many different Sahaba who mentioned these narrations. One of the most famous of these narrations is by Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, because now this contingent that's arriving at Khaybar to meet the Prophet ﷺ is not just the Meccan Muslims who lived in Abyssinia, it's also those Yemeni Muslims as well. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari was amongst them. So he has a, famous, a very famous narration from the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, where he talks about it. And he says that we were about 50 Samad people who had taken a ship and we had re- reached Habasha, there we met with Jafar bin Abi Talib, and we went to Medina, and then we found out the Prophet ﷺ was at Khaybar. So we went to meet the Prophet ﷺ. And the narrations are very, very touching and very beautiful, that when they arrived at Khaybar, the narrations mention uh, Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, Jabir bin Abdullah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, many of them mention this, that when they arrived at Khaybar and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam saw them from a distance and he saw Ja'far amongst them, the Prophet sallallahu face lit up by seeing Ja'far. This is my brother Ja'far. Right? And the Prophet ﷺ even made a comment at that time where he said, Shabbata khalqi wa khuluqi. That you are not only like me in appearance, Ja'far used to resemble the Prophet ﷺ very, very closely. He looked like his brother, because they were cousins. He said, Shabbata khalqi, you look like me wa khuluqi. And your character is like mine as well. What a huge compliment. Right? So the Prophet's face lit up just at the sight of Ja'far and the Prophet smiled and he was very excited. And in Ja'bir radiallahu ta'ala anhu in a hadith narration, hadith of Bayhaqi, he says that when Ja'far saw the Prophet that when he saw the Prophet, he started running towards the Prophet. The word he uses hajala is like skipping. Like he was leaping, jumping forward, leaping, skipping towards the Prophet ﷺ. He couldn't even walk. He was so excited to see the Prophet ﷺ again. When he reached the Prophet ﷺ, the narration says the Prophet ﷺ walked up to him. And the Prophet ﷺ held his head. And the Prophet ﷺ kissed him on his forehead. The Prophet ﷺ kissed Ja'far on his forehead. Right? Which is a sign of respect and love. And then the Prophet ﷺ hugged him and embraced him. And the Prophet ﷺ said that, I don't know what I am more pleased about today. The Prophet ﷺ said, I don't know what I'm pleased about today. Am I more pleased by the victory of Khaybar? Or am I more happy at, the re, uh, at being reunited with my brother Jafar? Right? So that was such a touching moment. And um, Jafar radiallahu ta'ala anhu comes and the Prophet ﷺ embraces him and they meet with them. And not only that, but the, the Muslims who had lived, the Prophet ﷺ, I found the narration, he says, مَا أَدْرِي بِأَيِّهِمَا أَنَا أُسَرُّ I don't know what makes me happier. بِأَيِّهِمَا أَنَا أُسَرُّ بِفَتْحِ خَيْبَرَ أَمْ بِقُدُومِ جَعْفَرَ 
I don't know whether I'm more excited the fact that we achieved victory at Khaybar, or I'm more excited by the re, by being reunited with my brother Jafar, right? And there's some very touching narrations that the Muslims who had lived for 13, 14 years uh, uh, out there in Habasha, you know, kind of isolated away from the Prophet ﷺ, they had they had gone through a lot. Right? And just the idea and the thought of being away from the Prophet ﷺ was very gut-wrenching, it was very heavy, it was very difficult for them. So the narration mentions, there's a very interesting narration from Bukhari, the same narration of Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, that Asma bint Umais, Asma bint Umais, she was an early Muslim from Makkah, a Qurashiya, a Makkiya who had accepted Islam and she was amongst those people who had migrated, who had gone to Habasha for refuge, sent by the Prophet So she went and she was sitting with Hafsa, Ummul Mu'mineen Hafsa bint Umar radiallahu ta'ala anima. She was sitting with the mother of the believers, the wife of the Prophet Hafsa, who is also the daughter of Umar bin al-Khattab. Right, so she was visiting with her, she was sitting with her, they were talking, catching up, exchanging stories, because they're both from Makkah. Right, so they're kind of reconnecting. Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu comes to visit Hafsa. And Asma is sitting with her. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Man hadihi. Right, like the ayat of hijab had come. So he said, who's visiting you? And she says, Asma bint Umais. This is Asma. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Al-Habashiya hadihi, Al-Bahriya hadihi. Right, and this is Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu is like an uncle. Right, because Hafsa is the friend of Asma bint Umais. And Umar is radiallahu ta'ala anhu is the father of Hafsa. So he's like an uncle. So he's somewhat teasing her. Right, just like an uncle. Right, so he says, Al-Habashiya hadihi? Al-Bahriya hadihi? This is the, the, the Habashiya. Like she's not, you know, from amongst them. Like a stranger. So Asma says, Naam, yes. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu realizes he's found something here. He's pressed a button. So again, in an uncle, kind of like an uncle type of manner, like a loving manner, like an elder does, like a father figure, he kind of continues pressing her buttons. He says, سَبَقْنَاكُمْ بِالْهِجْرَةِ We did hijrah before you. We got to Medina before y'all did. Right? So he says, فَنَحْنُ أَحَقُّ بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى مِنْكُمْ so we are closer to the Prophet than you are. I've been with him to here the whole time. So I'm closer to him than you are. We have more right to him than you do. Right? He's just teasing her, he's just bothering her uh, lovingly. And but she got really offended. You can imagine, right? She got really offended. She said, no, I swear to God. She says, no, that's not fair for you to say. You've been here with the Prophet ﷺ the whole time. If someone's hungry amongst you, he feeds you. She's talking about the miraculous incidents where the Prophet ﷺ can make this much food suffice for 800 people. He finds a way to feed you. He advises you and teaches you and counsels you. Like you had spiritual food. More important than physical food, you had spiritual food. We were in a place, or she says, we were in a land. Very far from home, strange land, we were strangers. 
and a place that we were not from, that we did not like. It was not home. There was nobody there for us. Bilhabasha, we were there far away. Wadalika fillahi wa fi rasulillah. And why did we stay there? Why did we do that? We did it for Allah and we did it for the Messenger of Allah. We made that sacrifice for Allah's sake and for Allah's Messenger's sake. Wa'aymullahi. And then she says, I swear to God. لا أطعم طعاما ولا أشرب شرابا حتى أذكر ما قلت للنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وأسأله والله لا أكذب ولا أزيغ ولا أزيد عليه and she says I swear to God I will not eat food I will not drink water until I go and I tell the Prophet what you said to me <laughs> and I ask him about what you have said and she says I will not lie I will not exaggerate, I will not increase anything, I will exactly relay your words. فَلَمَّا جَاءَ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم, When the Prophet ﷺ returned home, قَالَتْ يَا نَبِيَ اللَّهِ She said, O Messenger of Allah, O Prophet of God, إِنَّ عُمَرْ قَالَ كَذَا وَكَذَا Umar said this to me, and he said that to me, and he said this to me, right? Very upset. So, قَالَ فَمَا قُلْتِ لَهُ So the Prophet ﷺ asked, What did you say to him then? Right? The Prophet kind of gets it. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala just affectionately kind of, you know, playing with his, like a niece. So he says, what did you say back to him? قَالَتْ قُلْتُ I said this and I said that and I told him like this. And then the Prophet said, لَيْسَ بِأَحْقِبِي مِنْكُمْ He does not have more right to me than you do. وَلَهُ وَلِأَصْحَابِهِ هِجْرَةٌ وَاحِدًا Let him brag. Let him brag. They did one hijrah. وَلَكُمْ أَنْتُمْ أَهْلَ السَّفِينَةِ هِجْرَةً But you people who boarded that ship 14 years ago, you did two hijrahs. You went to Habasha and you came to Medina. So don't let him tease you like that. You tell him you did two hijrahs. He only did one. <laughs> right? قَالَتْ فَلَقَدْ رَأَيْتُ أَبَا مُوسَى وَأَصْحَابَ السَّفِينَةِ And she goes on to tell the story from the narration of Bukhari. She says that Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu ta'ala anhu and the other people who had made this migration with us, يَأْتُونِي أَرْسَالًا They used to come to me in groups repeatedly all the time. يَسْأَلُونِي عَنْ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ And they would tell us, please, please, please tell us again what the Prophet said. Because it was their virtue, their fadila. They wanted to hear the beautiful words of the Prophet congratulating them, being close to the Prophet sacrificing for the Prophet making not one but two hijras. And the Prophet is congratulating them. She says, مَا مِنَ الدُّنْيَا شَيْءٌ هُمْ بِهِ and she said the most valuable thing in their lives was the fact that the Prophet had said this about them. And then she goes on to say, Abu Musa al-Ashari used to come to me regularly just to hear this hadith from me over and over and over and over again. Right? So you see these very touching, beautiful interactions. Another narration, Abu Musa al-Ashari radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that when they had arrived, it's a hadith of Sahih Muslim, when they had arrived, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam again kind of welcoming, especially, okay, those who had gone to Habasha from Mecca, they were old community members, old family members returning back. But these people who came from Yemen, they were new uh, people in the community. Right? And there was a pre-Islamic thing, I talked about it much, much earlier, you know, in the, in the Sira series, 
that there was a little bit of a disparity, there was a little bit of an issue, cultural issue before Islam between the people of like Mecca and the Yemenis. Because the people of Yemen were, you know, had suffered through a drought and a lot of economic difficulty. They used to come to Mecca as laborers, as servants, as workers. So the Meccans before Islam, before Islam, pre-Islamically, Jahiliyyah, they used to really look down on them. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ, there's authentic narrations where the Prophet ﷺ says, Ahlul Yemeni hum Ahlul Yemen. Right? Uh, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, used to say that the people of Yemen are good people. He said, Hikmatu Yamani. The Prophet ﷺ said, Al Imanu Yamani wal Hikmatu Yamaniya. The Prophet ﷺ said, Iman, having faith, having belief is a Yemeni trait. Having wisdom is a Yemeni thing, right? To kind of counter the culture that was already in place. So these people came and the Prophet ﷺ wanted to welcome them and integrate them into the community. And not only, of course, the Prophet ﷺ would never exaggerate, he spoke the truth, but look what he, how he also kind of welcomes them and congratulates them and gives them value in the community. So in this narration, Abu Musa says that the Prophet ﷺ said, إِنِّي لَأَعْرِفُ أَصْوَاتَ الرُّفْقَةِ and the Ash'ariyun, that tribes people, they were very known as like performers and singers. Right? They have very beautiful voices. And when they came to Islam, they came to Medina, they embraced the learning of the Qur'an and they became some of the most beautiful reciters of the Qur'an. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I recognize the beautiful sounds, the beautiful voices of the Ash'ariyun when they recite the Qur'an. حِينَ يَدْخُلُونَ بِاللَّيْلِ When night sets in. وَأَعْرِفُ مَنَازِلَهُمْ مِنْ أَصْوَاتِهِمْ بِالْقُرْآنِ بِاللَّيْلِ I can tell you which are the homes of the Ash'ariyun just by the sounds of their recitation coming from their homes at night. Right? وَإِن كُنْتُ لَمْ أَرَى مَنَازِلَهُمْ حَتَّى نَزَلُوا بِالنَّهَارِ Even though I don't know which are their homes. I haven't seen during the day which are their homes. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, however, that's not all. They're not just like devout people of worship. The Prophet ﷺ also said that they are also fighters and warriors. Right? They're brave people. And not only that, but uh, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari in another narration of Bukhari, he says that when we arrived at Khaybar and the Prophet welcomed us and he embraced us and you know, uh, took us in, at that time even though the battle was over, the Prophet he allocated some of the spoils of war, the ghana'im that were recovered, he allocated some of them for us even though we didn't participate in the battle. Just to again give us something to start off our new lives with. Right? That was the care and the consideration of the Prophet ﷺ towards these people who were coming and joining the community. Now, one of the topics, now to kind of talk about a secondary topic, and I've talked about this before as well, we first were introduced to this particular concept after discussing and learning about the Battle of Badr. The Prophet ﷺ made a comment after the Battle of Badr. When it came to the spoils of war, right, the goods that are recovered after the battle. The Prophet ﷺ, the narration says, كَانَ يَكْرَهُ النَّوَافِلَ The Prophet ﷺ really used to dislike the distribution of the spoils of war. He disliked it. Like it's a necessary... It's, it's a necessary thing, it has to be done. But he did not like it. Because it's wealth, it's money, it clouds people's intentions and judgments. Like, not that the Sahaba would let their judgment or their sincerity get clouded, but it challenges, it's challenging, right? 
that to make sure that you're still doing it for Allah and not for the cash or the money, right? So there are some things, because Khaybar was probably one of the largest spoils of war that they received. Some of the Sahaba even comment by saying that we never knew what it was like to be able to not sleep hungry until Khaybar happened. That was the first time in Islam, ever since we became Muslim and became part of the community, that we knew what it was like to sleep and not be starving and hungry. Right? So Khaybar quite a bit was recovered. But that came with the challenges that I've talked about. And I wanted to kind of highlight them just so that we remember, and it's a powerful reminder about the importance of sincerity and knowing not just what we're doing, but why we're doing what we're doing. Right? So there's a couple of different incidents here. One particular incident it mentions that Abu Hurairah in a hadith of Bukhari, he says that when we got the spoils of war at Khaybar, there was not gold nor silver, but rather it was camels, goats, uh, supplies, you know, tools, things like that. So he says that when we left Khaybar and we reached the place of Wadi Al-Qura, which we'll be talking about a little bit later, there was a slave, you know, who had become Muslim and who had joined up with the Muslims and was kind of, you know, uh, taking care of the Prophet ﷺ. He was guarding the Prophet ﷺ, you know, at that time. And his name was Mid'am. And what happened was that there was a stray arrow. There was a stray arrow because on the way back, there were still pockets of people, little, you know, bandits or little remaining kind of like uh, people who had kind of fled from the forts who were still trying to ambush the Muslims. So a stray arrow came in and he was walking on the side of the Prophet ﷺ and it ended up striking him in the... it ended up striking him and he died from being struck by that arrow. So when he died on the spot, the Sahaba said, Hani an lahu ash-shahadatu. They said, wow, so lucky. He's shaheed in the path of Allah, hit by a stray arrow, guarding the Prophet wasallam. Wow, right? We envied him. And then at that time, some divine revelation, inspiration was given to the Prophet wasallam. And the Prophet wasallam said, kalla. He said, no, 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 you're mistaken. He said, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ I swear by Allah, إِنَّ الشَّمْلَةَ الَّتِي أَصَابَهَا يَوْمَ خَيْبَرِ لَمْ تُصِبْهَا الْمَقَاسِبِ He had a shawl that he was wearing. And the Prophet ﷺ said that shawl was not his. It was not given away in distribution. Rather what happened was before the spoils of war were distributed, because he was kind of serving the Prophet ﷺ and he was around, he saw this shawl in the pile of goods and it had not been distributed yet. He went over there and he kind of snatched a shawl for himself. All he had to do was come and ask. He kind of took it. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, عَلَيْهِ نَارًا And because of taking that now, he is punished in the fire. Honesty, integrity, with public funds, with community money, is that like serious. And it's that important. And it's such a precarious and dangerous, sensitive issue. Right? That we have to be very, very cautious and careful. 
At some level, what we should take from this, and this is not only the, the only case. Uh, when the Prophet ﷺ said this, a man comes to the Prophet ﷺ um, with a spear. He comes to the Prophet ﷺ with the spear, and he says, هَذَا شَيْءٌ كُنْتُ أَصَبْتُهُ He says that this is also something I picked up out of the, the collection before it was distributed. And he gave it back. And the Prophet ﷺ said, the Prophet said, this is a spear from the fire of hell. And it's good you gave it back. Right? That a lot of times, there's two dynamics. Number one, a lot of times we're very overzealous, we're very ambitious, right? To kind of be in charge, get involved, have control, have our hand in the pot, have our fingers in things. Because we see it as some semblance of control or authority. But this is such a dangerous thing. Such a dangerous thing. Be very cautious and very careful. On the other side, this should not discourage us from working in the community and doing work where work, is need, where work needs to be done. But if you are capable of serving the community in a particular capacity, do so. But never ever let your guard down. Never let your guard down in this regard. Always be very cautious and careful. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu, we all know the famous story when he assumed the reins of the Khilafah. And he was heading out to the marketplace and he had the cloth. And Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, Ya Abu Bakr, where do you go? Where are you going? And he said, I gotta go earn a living for my family. He said, no, no, no. If you're gonna go earn a living for your family, who's gonna take care of the ummah? We need you there taking care of people. We'll fix a stipend and allowance from the Baytul Mal that will support you and your family. Very reluctantly he said, okay. There's a couple of things. One, one time, Umm Ruman, the wife of Abu Bakr anhu, she says that, I wanted to prepare some type of fancy food that we used to have back in the day. Abu Bakr was very well to do once upon a time. So, and he had given everything for the sake of Islam. And so she said, I wanted to kind of make something kind of nice that we hadn't had in a long time, a delicacy, dessert, something. And so she says, I kind of really was very difficult, but from our weekly allowance, I just kind of scraped a little bit off to the side. You know, saved a buck each week or 50 cents each week off to the side for a few weeks until I was able to collect enough extra on the side. And then I prepared this little fancy dessert something. And I served it to Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala. He worked so hard, I prepared it for him, I served it to him. And when he saw it, you know, he, of course, it's a blessing from Allah, bismillah. He had some, he enjoyed it, thanked her, said alhamdulillah, so on and so forth. And then he asked her, he's like, how did we afford this? And she said, you know, I've been kind of saving a little bit off to the side until I was able to get it together. So he said, how much were you able to save off to the side? And she says, you know, 50 cents a week. He says, okay, thank you. He goes over to Abu Ubaidah, radiallahu ta'ala, who was the keeper of the Baytul Mal. And he said, I'd like you to decrease my allowance by 50 cents each week. I get too much. Those are public funds. It's the ummah's money. Abadan. It's one of the wisdoms in the tashri'ah. It's one of the wisdoms of the legislation from the Prophet ﷺ where he said that money, that the zakat funds are haram. Sadaqa money is haram, is not permissible for the Prophet ﷺ and his family. So nobody would ever be able to lift a finger and say that he and his family take from the public funds. 
when Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala was leaving this world as he passed away, called his daughter Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, our mother, he called her and he said to her, I have such and such garden outside of the city of Medina, one of my old properties, it still belongs to me, it's in my name. You know, I want you to go, I want you to sell the garden, it should sell for about this much. I've done the math, and in the two and a half years, this is the amount of money that I've taken from the Bayt al as allowance, that garden should sell for a little bit, for, a, for that much plus a little bit more, and I want you to donate that whole amount to the Bayt al I returned everything I took from there. I'm not gonna have that on my shoulders on the Day of Judgment. When she did that, Umar was a Khalifa by the appointment of Abu Bakr when she did that and she brought it, Umar said, your father has made my life so difficult. Your father is the, most, is the most difficult man to follow. I don't know how I'm ever going to live up to his example. Those are shoes to fill. Even Umar one time he comes home and somebody had donated some musk and perfume. And you know, the musk used to be kind of like in a, in a, in a kind of solid form. Right? Like a, like a block of cheese, imagine how it looks like. Like that, a solid form. It was very expensive. Somebody had donated that to the Bayt al-Mal. So Umar radiallahu ta'ala comes home and he sees his wife. His wife would try to help him around, you know, and kind of assist in different things. So he saw her kind of weighing the musk and, you know, writing it down and jotting it down for deposit into the Bayt al-Mal. And he comes home and he sees her and he says, what are you doing? She says, what? I'm helping you. I just came in, I know you'd have to sit and do it. And I figured I'd do it so that you get back after a long day of taking care of people, you don't have to worry about it. Like accounting work, I'll take care of it for you. And he said that, no, we, we cannot benefit from the public funds. He said, what do you mean benefit? I'm just measuring it. He goes, did some of that smell rub off on your hands? She said, yeah. And he, and he said, well, what did you do with it? And she said, it smells nice. So I was just... And he said, that, that right there. That's for the public fund. It's not for us to be perfuming ourselves and our clothes in our home. Look at, the, look at the meticulousness of these people. The integrity. We talk about the glory days of the ummah, but we have to remember these were people who cared about these things. Small things. We call them small things. They're not small things. They're huge things. Right? So this is a little story and incident from that distribution of the spoils of war at that particular time. There are two other things that I'd like to mention here. Brief incidents in the aftermath of the Battle of Khaybar, uh, while we have some time. Um, very short, five, it shouldn't take more than five, ten minutes. Um, two more quick short incidents in the aftermath of Khaybar that occurred that I'd like to share. The next thing is very, very well known, very well documented, and that is the incident of the Prophet ﷺ being poisoned. So in the aftermath of Khaybar, what happened was, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha talks about this in a very brief narration, and then I'll bring the more detailed narration. In Hadith of Bukhari, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, and Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu mentioned, لَمَّا فُتِحَتْ Khaybar, After the victory of Khaybar, أُهْدِيَتْ لِرَسُولَّهِ سَلَّهِمْ شَاتٌ فِيهَا سُمُّنْ There was somebody brought a gift to the Prophet somewhere, they had taken like a sheep, they had taken a lamb, they had roasted it, and brought it to the Prophet ﷺ as a, as, a, as a gift, like here's some dinner for you to share with some people, and it had been poisoned. 
And a more detailed narration from the Musnad of Imam Ahmad and other books like from the Sunan of Abu Dawood as well. Abu Hurairah says that there was a woman from amongst uh, some of the Jewish tribes that had lost at the Battle of Khaybar. But the Prophet ﷺ, I had mentioned this previously, he allowed the people of Khaybar to stay there, to live there, to continue to maintain their farms, and just said that they would have to pay tax to the now what we can call the Muslim government, the Muslim state in this based out of the city of Medina. So one of these women who was there, she prepared this animal, and she had poisoned the food, and she sent it for the Prophet ﷺ. Now the narrations mention that the Prophet ﷺ sat down to eat the food, and um, along with the Prophet ﷺ, there were some other people there. One particular person that was there with the Prophet ﷺ, who also ate from it, um, some narrations mention that there were a few people uh, but there's one person in particular whose name is mentioned. His name is Bishr ibn al-Barra ibn Ma'roor. Bishr, the son of al-Barra ibn Ma'roor. Al-Barra ibn Ma'roor was a very, very senior companion of the Prophet ﷺ, like senior in age. He was an Ansari. They were from the people of Banu Salama. He had become Muslim and he was considered a leader of his tribe. And when he became Muslim, it was a very big deal for the people in pre-Islamic Medina, Yathrib. It was a very big deal because him accepting Islam was like a statement of acceptance of Islam for the community. It became okay for others to become Muslim. And he was a very respectable companion of the Prophet He passed away shortly and the Prophet said very beautiful things about him. Um, the Prophet had a lot of you know, appreciation for him. His son Bishr, was one of the people there with the Prophet ﷺ. So when they came, it was put down, the Prophet ﷺ called people, they took some of the meat, and the Prophet ﷺ ate, and Bishr started to eat as well with the Prophet ﷺ. And after eating a little bit, the Prophet ﷺ told Bishr, stop, irfa'u idiyakum. The others who were there who were about to start eating, he said, remove your hands. He told Bishr, put the food down. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, this food has been poisoned. And they called some of the leaders of that tribe, and the Prophet ﷺ even asked them some questions. And the Prophet ﷺ said, I will ask you some questions. If I ask you, will you tell me the truth? And they said, of course, we would always tell you the truth. And the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, you know, who was the so-and-so forefather of your tribe? And they actually lied. And the Prophet ﷺ said, you're lying. And they said, okay, we're sorry. And then he said, well, if I ask you another question, will you tell me the truth? And they said, yes. Then the Prophet ﷺ said that, um, you know, who are the people who will go in the fire of hell? And then, or, and then the Prophet ﷺ said, but well, you lied to me previously. And they said, well, you knew we were lying, so you'll know if we're lying again. And he said, who will go in the fire of hell? And they said, we will go there for a little bit, but then we'll be removed from there. And then you people will go in the fire after us. Right? And then the Prophet ﷺ said, no, you're absolutely wrong, that's not correct, that's not true. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, I will ask you another question, will you tell me the truth? And he said, yes. The Prophet ﷺ said, was this food poisoned? And they said, yes. And eventually the Prophet ﷺ found out who was the woman who had poisoned, and the Prophet ﷺ called for her, and he said, why would you do this? Why would you do this? And she says to the Prophet ﷺ, I wanted to know, I wanted to test. If you're really a Prophet, God will tell you. 
وَإِنْكُنْتَ And if you're a liar, then I'm gonna be doing everybody a favor by getting rid of you. Right? The Prophet ﷺ, in the ultimate gesture of just graciousness, the Prophet ﷺ, in the hadith of Abu Dawud, he dismissed her. فَمَا عَرَضَ لَهَا رَسُولَ The Prophet ﷺ told her, go. No punishment, go. What you've done is wrong. You need to know what you did is wrong. Go. But the matter becomes further complicated. Imam al-Bayhaqi rahmallahu ta'ala mentions in narrations that the other sahabi who had actually eaten some of the meat, Bishop, he immediately, like the narrations mentioned, like his color started to change. He started to feel a lot of pain, break into sweats. He started see- seeming like he was very ill. So they tried to nurse him to health but eventually, sometime later, he died and he passed away from the poison. Right? And when he died, now that she had actually caused the death of someone, now it mentions that the Prophet ﷺ said that this is a case of qisas. You take someone's life and you face the penalty. So then, now officially, for himself he had forgiven her. But now that this was a legal issue, the Prophet ﷺ summoned her, called for her, and then she was executed as a punishment for having murdered somebody, poisoned somebody to death. Alright? And not only that, but the narrations mentioned that one time, the sister of Bishr came to visit the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ um, basically uh, talked to her uh, about you know, the death of her brother, so yeah, it mentions, so let me mention a few things. The Prophet ﷺ, he himself kind of felt, because he had eaten a little bit, he felt the effects of some of the poison as well. So what the Prophet ﷺ did was before he returned back, he actually had what we call blood cupping, hajama performed on him. Ihtijam, hajama, blood cupping, he had that performed to provide some relief. Um, and it be, remained a habit of the Prophet ﷺ, that whenever he would kind of feel the pain of it, he would have that blood cupping done, uh, the hajama done. And not only that, but Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu in a hadith of Bukhari and Muslim, he says, فَمَا زِلْتُ أَعْرِفُهَا فِي لَهَوَاتِ رَسُولَهِ The eating of the poison had caused like some type of effect on the, some narrations mentioned the inner lip, and some mentioned the top of the mouth, on the inside that had left a little bit of an effect, like there were some blisters or something there, and had left like some effect, you could see there was some change of color. And Anas radiallahu ta'ala was very close to the Prophet he said whenever he would smile or open his mouth or something, I could see the spots where he had gotten like some of the sores and blisters from that poison that he had taken in. Until the end of his life. Not only that, but as I was mentioning, Towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, a day or two before he passed away, um, the sister of Bishr came to visit the Prophet ﷺ. And when she came to visit the Prophet ﷺ, her name, uh, she was also known as Ummu Bishr, Ummu Bishr, but she was actually the sister uh, of Bishr. 
um, she came to visit the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Ya Umma, ya umma Bishr, in the Hadal Awan, Wajatu in Qida'a Abhari min al Akla Tilati Akaltu Ma'a Akhiki bi Khaybar. I still feel sometimes the pain and some of the physical after effects of that poisoned meat that I had eaten along with your brother at Khaybar. Right? So that was something else that occurred in the aftermath of the Battle of Khaybar. And Alhamdulillah, the Prophet ﷺ was able to survive that, but nevertheless there was a death that occurred due to that. The last thing that I'll mention here, very short narration and incident, but something very interesting, a very human moment if you will, and a huge teaching opportunity and learning opportunity for us. A teaching moment and a learning opportunity for us. In the narration of Imam Ahmad, it mentions that as they were returning back from Khaybar, they camped out at a particular place and it was actually the time on the way back from Khaybar when the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ occurred to Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha. And they had the walima and everything. At that particular time, everybody was up a little bit later than usual because of the feast the Prophet ﷺ had hosted as the walima. And when everybody finally went to sleep at night in the camp, the Prophet ﷺ specifically on that night instructed Bilal ﷺ, because everyone's tired because of the journey, everyone's sleeping a little bit later than ideal, you need to stay up tonight. You need to stay up tonight so that we don't end up missing Fajr. So Bilal ﷺ who says that I sat down like in the direction of where the sun would come up so that I could start to see the light in the horizon and see kind of the, the Fajr time. And he says that there was, the camel was sitting behind me. So I was sitting there, you know, alert, waiting for that morning hour. And after a little while, I got, got, I got a little tired. So I just kind of leaned back against the camel that was sitting behind me. I leaned back against it and I dozed off. And he said I was out. And everyone was out. And the sun came up. Fajr was gone. And the Prophet ﷺ was the first one to wake up. And he comes out of the tent. And the Prophet ﷺ, he, he comes out of the tent. And the Prophet ﷺ is saying, What did you do to us, Bilal? What did you do? And Bilal wakes up in a panic and he's very nervous. And he says, Ya Rasulullah. O oh, Messenger of Allah, أَخَذَ بِنَفْسِي الَّذِي أَخَذَ بِنَفْسِكَ <laughs> He says, O oh, Prophet of Allah, same thing happened to me that happened to you. <laughs> right? I overslept. I'm so sorry. The Prophet ﷺ says, Sadaqt. It's okay. It's alright. It's okay. Happens to, it's, it's human. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Wake everybody up. And they woke everybody up. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Everybody get up, immediately pack up and move. Like kind of wake everybody up. And they started moving and they stopped at another place and they stopped there and then the Prophet ﷺ told everybody, Nadu wudu. Everyone did wudu. And then they lined up and the Prophet ﷺ told Bilal call the adhan, line everybody up and everybody lined up and then the Prophet ﷺ led them in prayer. وَأَمْرَ بِلَالًا فَأَقَامَ لَهُمُ الصَّلَاةَ وَصَلَّى بِهِمْ الصُّبْحَ And then the Prophet ﷺ led the Fajr prayer. And after the prayer was done, the Prophet ﷺ turned to the Muslims, the Sahaba, and he said the famous narration, Whoever misses a prayer should pray it as soon as they remember or get the opportunity to do so. 
And then the Prophet ﷺ said, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَىٰ قَالْ Because Allah has said, وَأَقِمِ الصَّلَاةَ لِذِكْرِي As soon as you remember, pray. And then the Prophet ﷺ, that was the story of having missed the Fajr prayer, but immediately, you know, making that prayer up, and the Prophet ﷺ taught us the etiquette of doing so. So of course, we don't take this as a license to deliberately miss prayer, but we realize through the through his own example, the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us, everyone has a human moment, and when you have a human moment of weakness, you try to recover and make up for it as soon as you can, the best you can. And then the last thing I'll mention here is as they were journeying back in the Hadith of Bukhari, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari says that we were walking through a valley and the Sahaba were saying very, very loudly, almost screaming, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illallah. And the Prophet said, Irba'u ala anfusikum. Relax, it's okay. Take it easy. Thank you. He said, Take it easy, relax. Innakum la tad'una asam, wala ghaiban. You do not call a God who is deaf or who is absent. You call to someone who hears you, who is near you, and he is always with you. And Abu Musa al-Ashari says that, I was riding behind the Prophet and the Prophet heard me saying the words, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. And the Prophet turned to me and he said, Ya Abdullah ibn Qais, that's Abu Musa's name. He says, قُلْتُ لَبَيْكَ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ I said, yes, O Messenger of God. He said, أَلَا أَدُلُّكَ عَلَىٰ كَلِمَةٍ مِنْ كَنْزِ الْجَنَّةِ Do you want me to teach you some words that come from the treasures of paradise? I said, بَلَا يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ Of course, فِدَاكَ أَبِي وَأُمِّي I would give anything for you, please teach me. And he said, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. Meaning he was congratulating him, what you were saying is beautiful. And it is a treasure from the treasures of paradise. So inshallah, with that we'll conclude here. We talked about a lot of very uh, beautiful things, the reuniting, the love the Prophet ﷺ had for the Sahaba, for the Muslims, how the Prophet ﷺ cared about people's feelings and what they were sensitive about. We talked about some of the, 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 the caution and the care that we should have with public funds. We talked about some of the challenges from the life of the Prophet ﷺ where he was poisoned by the enemy. And not only that, but we talked about this very human you know, experience that sometimes if we do slip up, the lesson taught to us by the Prophet is immediately get back up and make sure you fix the issue and you fix the mistake. And then finally we see the Prophet teaching us the value of the remembrance and the dhikr of Allah. لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. May Allah subhanahu wa taala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. سبحان الله وبحمده. سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك. نشهد ولا إله إلا أنت. نستغفرك ونتوب إليك.